Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I came up with a pretty good idea for a movie the other day. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hub, there are no new movie ideas. If there were, why would they keep making remakes? Well, calm down. I never said it was a new idea. It isn't. My idea is that they should make a movie that's like a hybrid of real genius and Jurassic Park. So you get all these dinosaur cloning scientists that are a bunch of undergrad cool rebels who just want to party and clone dinosaurs. And then you get their uptight professor who doesn't want them to clone dinosaurs. He wants them to work on his government contracts for him. Now here's the twist. Instead of being played by William Atherton, the uptight professor is played by Jeff Goldblum. Which means that at one point he gets to say, Ah, these young scientists, so preoccupied with whether they can clone dinosaurs, they never stop to ask, May I clone dinosaurs? And they may not. Then a T-Rex fills his house with popcorn. The end. So hit me up, Hollywood. Just send a million dollars to Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294, and that idea is yours. Now that my financial future is secure, let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Neil Butler. Prince wanted your extra time and your kiss. Hub just wants some quiet to write this synopsis. Thanks, Neil. Defenders, number 97, July, 1981. Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Written by J.M. DeMattis, drotted by Don Perlin, inked by Joe Sinnott, Sal Trapiani, and Jack Abel, lettered by Diana Albers, and Rick Parker, and Joe Rosen, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Hellcat. Doctor Strange. Son of Satan, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, the Gargoyle, Devil Slayer, and Man-Thing. A little bit, in like two panels. Previously in the Defenders. Devil Daddy Dugada, Damon Hellstrom, a.k.a. the Son of Satan, got word that a sextet of minor league demons had joined forces and moved in together as finger puppets on a giant evil hand. This unconventional new living arrangement had made the group of demons, who called themselves the Six-Fingered Hand, exponentially more powerful, and Damon's research indicated that they had set their sinister sights on the Defenders. Hellstrom hurried to warn our heroes of their new infernal adversaries, but he got distracted by having to save the world a couple of times. By the time he remembered to fill the gang in on the bizarre nature of their fiendish foes, disaster had already befallen two titular non-team members. Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, had been the victim of a mysterious magical assault which had nearly killed the billionaire do well bird enthusiast and left him paralyzed. Except at night, when he was still as strong as two strong men. But it was still a real inconvenience. Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, fared even worse. 
The cat-costumed crime fighter was kidnapped by an agent of the Six-Fingered Hand who had been transformed into a hideous gargoyle. Steve, Damon, and Valkyrie went to investigate Hellcat's disappearance and found that the gargoyle had destroyed Patsy's home and nearly killed her family's long-suffering housekeeper, Dolly Donahue, in the process. After dropping Dolly off at the hospital, the heroes tracked down Hellcat to the seemingly idyllic town of Christianboro, Virginia, where the grotesque gargoyle had just performed a ritual allowing the demon Avarish, a member of the Six-Fingered Hand, to possess Patsy's soul, transforming the formerly fun-loving Defender into a being that was both more hellish and more cat-like. This fiendish feline version of their former friend led a horde of minor demons in an attack on her erstwhile non-teammates, nearly killing Steve and Damon, until Valkyrie appealed to Patsy's better nature and friendshiped her back to normal. Son of Satan performed a hasty exorcism which seemingly banished Avarish from Patsy's body. Then the gang followed the gargoyle to the home of local octogenarian crackpot, Isaac Christians. It turned out that Isaac and the gargoyle were one and the same. The statue semblance senior citizen had agreed to work for Avarish in exchange for economic prosperity for his beloved hometown. Avarish had transformed Isaac into his current unsettling form to help him better carry out his mission. But now that the demon master had been defeated, the change was permanent and Ike was out of a job. He apologized for all the kidnapping, demon sacrificing, and attempted murder, and asked if he could join the defenders to help make amends for these minor transgressions. Displaying a nearly goldfish-like ability to put the past behind them, the Defenders agreed and welcomed Isaac aboard. To further illustrate both their questionable judgment and the fact that demon hunting makes for strange bedfellows, the Defenders next teamed up with literal Dracula to fight Puishant, another member of the Six-Fingered Hand who had been meddling with vampiric politics, as if there were another kind. Literal Dracula and the Defenders emerged triumphant from their demonic dust-up, but our heroes had little time to celebrate their victory, as Steve's sorcerous sleuthing had revealed that evil was afoot in Detroit. Or more to the point, evil was a hand in Detroit. A six-fingered hand. After bidding literal Dracula a not-so-fond farewell, the Defenders headed to the Motor City, where Fashima, yet another demon from the malevolent Metacarpus which had been menacing them, had made a deal with a rock singer named Asmodeus Jones and his manager Felix Palmer. In exchange for access to the souls of his fans, Fashima had granted Asmodeus the demonic powers of good at rock and rollness and laser blasts. The Defenders teamed up with Flaming Skulled Motorcycle Enthusiast, Ghost Rider, and confronted the sinister singer on stage. Jones summoned Fashima to aid him and a fierce battle ensued. Eventually, the Defenders defeated the perfidious performer and his hell-spawned hype demon. But before returning to the diabolical digit she called home, Fashima claimed the soul of Asmodeus Jones's manager, Felix. As the gang took Jones into custody, the now-repentant rocker revealed that Felix had been his brother, who had made a Faustian bargain with Fashima on his sibling's behalf. Asmodeus asked for a moment to grieve his hellbound brother, and the defenders complied with the tearful troubadour's request. Except for Patsy, who started laughing her ass off. Gadzooks! Is Asmodeus Jones's stage gear really that amusing? After their fight with a satanic rock star, what decadent, depraved enemy will the Defenders do battle with next? And will our titular non-team be satisfied to have only one Mephistophelian monikered member? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Kinda? But that's probably not the only reason Patsy was laughing. 
a long-haired holy man wandering around the desert in the Middle East healing the sick, and apparently not, because enter Devil Slayer. The defenders are hanging out in the suburban rental home they just commandeered from the satanic rock star they defeated. Doctor Strange was of the opinion that if he meditated real hard in a place where a member of the Six-Fingered Hand used to hang out, he might be able to figure out where they were headed next. He floats cross-legged in the middle of the living room for like five or six hours, before finally admitting that this assumption wasn't actually based on anything. Nighthawk had sat out the last mission because some of it might have taken place during the day when he was unable to move, but Steve teleported the affluent avian aficionado in to join them before he started his marathon float-and-think session. When he returns from the astral plane or whatever to rejoin the group, Steve turns to Kyle and is like, Sorry about dragging you here. I thought we were going to confront our demonic adversaries and might need your astounding ability to be as strong as two strong people a little bit less than half the time. Which, now that I think of it, averages out to just being one pretty strong person. Kyle is like, Hey, don't worry about it. I always wanted to visit Detroit. I mean, I've spent the entire trip in the confines of a windowless living room, but it's a windowless living room in Detroit! Just knowing that I'm relatively proximate to the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation makes traveling halfway across the country and then spending the only hours that I'm able to move standing in a small room with five other people totally worthwhile. Steve is like, Um, good. Anyway, since I was unable to locate the hand by poking around in my own mind, I thought I might try looking in someone else's mind. Patsy, you've been acting a little weird lately. That guy's brother dying was funny, but it wasn't that funny. Can I use my magic jewelry to go inside your brain and look for demons? Patsy is like, no fucking way. I don't want you mucking around in my brain. That's where I keep my thoughts. Steve is like, the fact that you have concerns about personal privacy and don't want the guy who mystically lobotomized the Hulk and drove Barbara Norris irrevocably magically crazy when he invaded their minds to go inside your brain? can only be the result of demonic influence. I'd better have a look in there. Patsy is like, Yeah, that makes sense. In you go. Steve does a mind meld with Patsy. Almost immediately, he finds that traces of avarice are still living in there. Presumably rent-free, but there's a lot I don't understand about cerebral real estate, so who knows for sure. Steve has a little chat with the remnant of avarice, mostly expositionally reminiscing about the events of the last few issues. When Steve decides he's heard enough, he asks Hellcat to concentrate really hard on squirting all the residual demonness out of her brain. Patsy does as she is asked, and a beam of hellish energy blasts out of the partially possessed protagonist's head, knocking Steve across the living room. Patsy thanks Steve and says she feels fully back to normal. The supercilious sorcerer accepts Patsy's thanks graciously, but internally he's still troubled. While he was in his non-teammate's mind, he saw something which kind of freaked him out. Wait a minute, Steve. You mean you peeked inside the deepest recesses of the mind of a former child star who recently learned that her deceased mother tried to sell her soul to a demon? And you saw something disturbing? What are the odds? Steve has little time to dwell on the questionable contents of Patsy's subconscious, because just then, a visitor teleports into the already crowded room. It's Eric Simon Payne, a.k.a. Devil Slayer. 
Eric is a disillusioned Vietnam vet and former cult member who teamed up with the Defenders back in issues 58 through 60. He has a shadow cloak like the one Patsy never uses, which lets him teleport and from which he can retrieve any weapon he wants. Usually he just uses a big old sword though. As his initials would imply, he also has a sort of low-grade ESP and some minor telekinetic powers which mostly work on fabric. Eric is like, Hey guys, it's me, Devil Slayer. Remember me from Defenders issues 58 through 60? We teamed up and fought an evil cult who based all of their dogma on Blue Oyster cult lyrics. The gang acknowledges that they do indeed remember that. Eric introduces himself to Damon and Gargoyle. Damon is kind of a dick, maybe because he's worried that Eric's name implies that he might murder Damon's dad before Damon gets the chance to, but more likely it's because Damon is just kind of a dick. Eric is like, wow, you seem like kind of a dick. Anyway, I just got a letter from my estranged ex-wife, Corey. She moved to Israel and joined a cult that worships a guy named David Kessler, who claims to be the Messiah. For undisclosed reasons that I'm going to gloss over right now, I'm pretty sure this David guy is an agent of the Six-Fingered Hand. Can you guys go to the Middle East with me and help me deprogram my wife? Steve and Damon take a look at Corey's letter, and when it spontaneously combusts, they are forced to admit that there may be something suspicious about it. As Steve teleports everyone halfway around the globe to a tiny oasis in the middle of the desert, we get a few panels checking in on the swamp in Florida that the dick-nosed shambling mound of vegetation and emotions named Man-Thing calls home. Man-Thing is trudging around in the muck when he sees a little diamond-shaped tear in the fabric of reality hovering a few feet off the ground. He goes to poke at it with one of his slimy sludge fingers, like he was Paul Hollywood mashing up a biscuit that he feels is insufficiently desiccated for his British sensibilities. Before we find out whether Man-Thing thinks the hole in reality is stodgy and underproved, or arid enough to be worthy of a self-important handshake, we cut back to our heroes, who have just arrived at their destination. Steve has not only handled the gang's transportation, he's also disguised them all as unassuming tourists. Man, he really thought of everything. Well, almost everything. One thing he didn't think of was the time difference between Detroit and the Middle East, because when they arrive at the Oasis, it's the middle of the day. Uh-oh. As soon as the rays of the sun hit him, Kyle's nocturnal prowess flees his body, and he collapses to the ground. Oops. Steve is about to teleport Kyle back home, when Devil Slayer is like, Hold up a minute, Steve. This would-be messiah that my ex-wife is so keen on claims to be able to heal people. Let's pawn Kyle off on him. When he isn't able to make him feel better, then everyone will see that he's a chump, and my wife will love me again. Everyone agrees that that sounds like a great plan, and the party heads towards the purported messiah and his followers. When they reach him, David Kessler, a long-haired bearded young man, is waist-deep in a watering hole surrounded by palm trees. He's just finished faith-healing a blind man. As they approach, Devil Slayer's ex-wife Corey recognizes Eric and greets him warmly. As the former couple gets reacquainted, Valkyrie carries Kyle over to David and explains that her friend is paralyzed and could use whatever miracles could be provided for him. David is like, Well, bring him down to the water. Me and my dad, God, maybe you've heard of him, will have him patched up in no time. While David lowers Kyle's body into the water and stares intently at him, Corey fills Eric in on the alleged messiah's backstory. David Kessler was a hippie who used to go to a lot of anti-war protests. 
Then he got a job teaching at a school for children with disabilities. Then he went to Israel to try to reconnect with his roots. He wandered off into the desert, where he hung out for 20 days, when an angel appeared to him, told him that he was the son of God, and filled him with divine powers. Ever since then, he's been roaming around, preaching the gospel of himself, and trying to heal as many people as he can. Eric is pretty skeptical, but as Corey is finishing her exposition dump, a peal of thunder is heard and a bolt of lightning flashes in the otherwise calm sky. As everyone looks on in amazement, Kyle rises to his feet, completely healed of the ailment he had been mysteriously stricken by a few issues ago. Hooray? At this point, Kyle is pretty convinced that this Dave guy is probably on the level about everything. But the conspicuously convalesced crime fighter's non-teammates are still unconvinced. Damon Hellstrom is like, I know a thing or two about having a notable religious figure as a parent, and there is something fishy about this guy. And I don't mean fishy in the loaves and sort of way. Isaac is like, yeah, slow down there, perfidiously parented whippersnapper. First of all, I don't think the phrase is loaves and fishy, and B, perhaps there's some kind of middle ground here. Like, maybe this here David fella is a little bit the messiah. I didn't really think this through, but I don't like conflict, so uh, both sides. Dave is like, I too hate conflict, so tell you what. How about the three of us hold hands, and I'll use my powers to reveal the truth about all of us, okay? Damon and Isaac are like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, really, guys? Dave does his thing. There's a flash of light, and suddenly, David finds himself holding hands with a hideous gargoyle and a dude with a Dracula cape, a pitchfork, a horn-shaped haircut, and a pentagram tattooed on his chest. Son of Satan is like, Satisfied? I think that should clear things up that we're the good guys around here. Wow. Just, wow. And it never occurred to me that there might be a character who makes Doctor Strange seem self-aware. For some reason, David and his followers are not immediately persuaded that the demon-looking guy and the Satan-worshipping looking guy are on the side of the angels. Their suspicions appear to be confirmed when a flock of what looks like actual angels descend from the heavens with flaming swords and attack the defenders. Our heroes do what their name would imply that they might and defend themselves. A desert Donnybrook breaks out. As the battle rages around them, Nighthawk and the former Mrs. Devil Slayer stand off to one side, unsure what to do. They believe in David, but also know that the defenders aren't the evil beings they're being made out to be. Finally, the two uneasy onlookers deploy the most powerful weapons in their arsenal. Thoughts and prayers. Well, that ought to do the trick. Remarkably, it actually kind of does. Huh. Seeing how concerned Cory and Kyle are, and how much they believe in him, Dave figures that even if the defenders are evil, he doesn't want them or anyone else to get hurt. He implores the angels he summoned to cease their attack and is confused as fuck when the alleged angels ignore him. Steve sees the surprise on David's face and is like, Oh, I see. You're not evil, just stupid. Here, I'll cast a spell to disperse all illusions so that you can see what a dope you've been. Steve waggles his fingers, and suddenly the glowing heavenly host is revealed to be a pack of some of the goofiest goddamn demons I have ever seen. 
seriously. These guys make hot stuff. The little diaper-clad devil who used to hang out with Casper the Friendly Ghost look intimidating. Regardless of how goofy they look, David is horrified that he has unwittingly been in league with demons this whole time. He falls to his hands and knees and starts punching the sand. A few minutes later, the gullible would-be savior rises to his feet, a strange look in his eyes. Doctor Strange is like, I'm sorry you had to see that, David. It must be terrible to find out that you're not the most important person on the planet. I'm not sure what I'd do if I found out that I wasn't. David is like, Sorry, Steve, but David's not here anymore. My name is Hippocri, and I'm one of the demons from the Six-Fingered Hand. We found this hippie chump wandering around in the desert, so we pranked him into thinking he was the Messiah. Good one, huh? He was so earnest and charismatic, we figured he'd get a bunch of followers, and when he had enough, we'd take over and make them do bad stuff or eat their souls or something. I'm a little hazy on the details. But now that you've ruined this batch of disciples by forcing us to show our hand, get it? Hand? Because we're the six-fingered hand? Yeah. Anyway, we're just going to murder everybody and start over. When Corey hears that, Eric's ex-wife Corey, that is, not my brother Corey, she rushes over and begs David to snap out of it. Hippocri uses Dave's body to smack Corey aside. That doesn't sit too well with Devil Slayer. He rushes to his former spouse's defense, but to little avail. The Dave-inhabiting demon blasts him with a bolt of evilness or something. Hippocri slash David stands over Devil Slayer's prone form menacingly and prepares to deliver a death blow to the aspirationally named adventurer. But as the demon is about to strike, David Kessler momentarily rests back control of his body, just long enough to impale himself on Eric's sword. As the self-sacrificing pseudo-savior breathes his final gasp of breath, the demon Hippocri is forced to flee his body, lest he perish as well. The air shimmers and the entire host of doofy-ass demons disappears. A distraught Corey Payne holds the corpse of her fallen figure of worship in her arms and weeps. Ever the voice of compassion, son of Satan is like, What a dumbass! Kyle is like, Hey, he sacrificed himself to save our lives. Damon is like, Yeah, that's what I meant. Eric turns to Corey and is like, Now do you see why you shouldn't join cults? Corey looks at her smug ex-husband and is like, You know, still not the biggest mistake I've ever made. To be continued. Joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going wonderful. Oh, that's better than usual, I would hazard to say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was at the coast all weekend, and um, it's a beautiful day. Had a nice drive back. So, yeah, really good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm uh, trying to mitigate the effects of some Mountain Dew that I drank earlier with some beer. So uh, we'll see how that poor man's speedball works out for me. I misheard you at first to think you had made some sort of a devil's shandy. No. Oh, that would be the most hellish of shandies, especially as this was novelty Mountain Dew, as I like to think of it. Isn't all Mountain Dew novelty <laughs> Mountain Dew? 
Well, one would hope. If it becomes a regular part of your diet, that's probably not for the best. But last weekend, Lisa and I watched the new Mortal Kombat movie and decided that we would like to have a themed evening of it. So we got all five varieties of Mountain Dew that are available and did shots of them as we watched the movie. (laughs) Oh, God. Which seemed very appropriate, I must say. Okay, so there's regular. Uh Uh-huh. There's Code Red. Yes. And then there's a blue one, I believe. There is a blue one. There is also an orange one that is called Livewire. And there is a new watermelon one. Oh, no. It's called Major Melons. (laughs) Or Major Melon. Probably Major Melon. (laughs) Probably. But still. Gosh. You are, uh, uh, I was going to say brave, but I don't know. How'd it go? Um, so original Mountain Dew was a fucking delight. Hmm. Code Red, not bad. And then everything else was fucking terrible. The one that I just finished was the Livewire, the orange one. And it isn't terrible. It tasted like an orange jello shot. With no booze? With no booze. It just tasted like that, which is a little bit unsettling. Hmm. The blue one tasted like blue in a way that I didn't care for. And the major melon, we got that because we're completionists, but... I think going into it, we both knew that it wasn't for us. I'm not a fan of artificial watermelon flavor. Mm-hmm. And I think Lisa described most of the second generation, I would say, Mountain Dew flavors as tasting like cartoon sweat. And uh, beaver butts. Probably not an insignificant amount of beaver butt in there. Because mm-hmm. that's not just vanilla, right? They use it in fake fruit flavors too, right? Yeah, I think vanilla and raspberry are the main one, and the blue one may have been raspberry. Mm -hmm. It's tough to tell. It just tasted like blue, or as Lisa said, like cartoon animal sweat. Oof. Not something I need to be taking shots of. I'm glad you did it, so we don't have to. Well, that's what I'm here for. Take that Mountain Dew bullet for the team. Well, I hope the beer works. So far, so good. I think the dynamic tension... The uh, stimulant and depressant will draw my mind taut and firm, making me smarter. That's mm-hmm. the idea. Yeah, that's how it usually goes. Yeah, that's what I've noticed. <laughs> you want to talk about a comic book? Let's do it. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I liked this comic book. It feels like it's been a long time since I read a Defenders comic book. I don't know why that is. I think maybe just the last Teen Titans one was occupying my mind i I don't know but this was a good time yeah i enjoyed it i I didn't not have any issues with it there were things about it that worked better than other things about it but overall it was an enjoyable read i felt like one thing that i continue to appreciate about demetrius's run is that the pacing continues to be that each issue works as a standalone story and also advances the further plot of the six-fingered hand. And that can be a difficult needle to thread, and I think he's doing a nice job with it. Yeah, I agree. And we know it's going to start off as a a literary doozy, because it's got that Yates quote. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, I like Yates, but I'm always a little bit disappointed when he comes up, because at first I always mix him up with William Blake, who I like a little bit better, because... He did really weird shit and did fun pictures with it. But I like Yates okay. 
I was not familiar with the body of his work other than that Second Coming poem, which I also hadn't read forever. And so I did look it up and read it. And holy cow, is that a bummer? Yeah, who would have thought you'd, you'd have a bummer of a poem about the coming of the Antichrist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book starts off, and the title of the book, too, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, comes from that quote, which is probably the most famous section of a Yeats poem. Mm-hmm. A rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem. Yeah, so just evocative, right? The creepy, lion-bodied, human-headed critter plodding mm-hmm. through the desert steadfast. Yeah, wouldn't bother me if that guy was a little bit less steadfast. Yeah. Take your time, Antichrist. What's the hurry? Yeah, why don't you slouch toward uh, a watering hole? (laughs) Lay down. (laughs) Take a nap. Yeah, I'm just going to come out and say it, Corey. I am not a fan of the Antichrist. Mm. I know it's a hot take. It's controversial. But uh, he's no friend of mine. Yeah, I I think we we all learned that from watching uh, The Omen. Man, did that movie... I haven't seen that since uh, <laughs> since childhood. It scared me so bad as a kid. I like it, Even as an adult, I'm like, nope. But no, I was thinking of Prince of Darkness. Oh, right. The, uh, the John Carpenter one. I haven't seen that one because your description of it when I was a kid scared me so much. It's pretty creepy. I saw it recently in the theater. They had, I think, uh, had gotten a hold of... What is the... Probably 35 millimeter. people like, yeah, 35 millimeter reels. And uh, man, it was a blast from the past. It is so sexist. Yeah, that comes up more in Carpenter stuff than I wish it did. Mm -hmm. And frankly, the 80s in general. Yeah, it was interesting to watch that as an adult, having seen it as, um, I don't know, I was a tween maybe when I first saw that. And of course, didn't at that time really notice anything problematic with it. No, of course not. And seeing it now, I was just like, ooh, that's rough. Yeah, wish that guy had just slouched back where he came from. Exactly. So, yeah, there is that odd religious theme to this comic that is really jarring. I think you're just not used to seeing it done so overtly. And certainly, I think in the early 80s, it would have been even more jarring to just see that there is a character in it calling himself the messiah and that the tagline on the cover is menace of the messiah mm-hmm. and you get the religious iconography and the character uh, david kessler who sees himself as literally the new messiah but he's being duped by those darn demons again honestly the fact that it is such potentially controversial material led me to wonder if that is connected to the fact that the artwork in this is a little bit sloppy-seeming. And I think that is the product of the fact that it is another kind of all-hands-on-deck situation. Mm. In addition to the credited artists that are on it, there were two inkers working uncredited on this, Sal Tropiani and Jack Abel. And in addition to that, you also had two additional letterers working on the book, which is usually the sign that there have been some last-minute rewrites. And given the potentially controversial nature of the book, it would not surprise me if that was some editorial mandates that were handed down late. So I'm curious if that's what was going on there, because there are panels that are absolutely beautifully drawn, and then there are panels that look like they were maybe 
hastily redrawn. Yeah, that makes me very curious to see what would have been the -the over-the-top version of this that got modified. Well, and that is, you know, entirely speculation on my part, but it doesn't seem that unlikely to me, especially with what a hands-on editor-in-chief Jim Shooter could sometimes be. He had a reputation for micromanaging in a way that would sometimes lead to last-minute rewrites of comic books, and that would be consistent with, I think, what we see in this book. Although, again, totally speculation. So what did you think of David Kessler? You know, that name just sounded so much like he was a cult leader. I Google. I was like, oh shit, is this based on some guy <laughs> in the 80s that was horrible? And nope, it's just a, a character's name. Yeah, I, it sounds a little bit like David Koresh. I, I think it's understandable to make that connection where you have two David K's calling themselves a messiah. Mm-hmm. I was pretty unimpressed by this guy, I gotta say. I know we're supposed to feel pretty sympathetic towards him, and it was certainly a shocking moment at the end when he throws himself onto Devil Slayer's sword. But other than that, my notes on the guy were like, bad hippie, bad teacher, bad dresser, bad messiah. I was missing the president of the drama club category. I love his reaction to realizing his whole messianess is a demon sham is to literally pound sand, <laughs> to, like just get on his hands and knees and hit the desert floor. He looks like he is throwing such a tantrum there. I think that is compounded by the fact that as you see him doing this, the caption says Kessler falls to the earth, beats his fist against hot sand, tears course down his cheeks. That is presented in parentheses in a way that most of the captions aren't. It made me wonder if that was an art direction that just got printed on the caption. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, have you seen that clip of Kevin Sorbo yelling the word disappointed? (laughs) (laughs) No, from the Hercules show? Yeah, he was giving a speech... And he just said the word disappointed aloud. Oh, no. And uh, yeah, it's the only time in a long time that Kevin Sorbo's made me smile. A little bit of a Ron Burgundy situation there. Wait a minute. This isn't my world. Disappointed! But it made me wonder if that was what was going on in that panel, if that was supposed to be art direction, but it ended up really highlighting what a little tantrum he was throwing for himself. I mean, with good reason, but still, the physical pounding his hands, you can almost hear him saying the word, wah. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, we see that, as I said, he is also a bad hippie. We see that when Corey Payne which would be a pretty badass wrestling name for you if you ever decide to go that route, Corey. Oh, thank um, She is describing David's backstory, and it shows him at a peace rally. And for a hippie, he's an awfully big fan of the Mercedes brand. Because you see, he's got a picket sign that has the Mercedes logo on it. You think that's him? Pulled? No, that's he's holding the sign that says Make Love Not War. The Mercedes one is behind him. <laughs> Oh, well, either way, it does bring up the point. (laughs) 
Yes, those noises of respective ubulation and echolocation mean that there are indeed picket signs going on. Nope. He looks so much like Neil Young in that picture to me. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, and he's holding a sign that says, Make Love, Not War. And you can see it, it is a freshly made sign because it does not look like a stylistic choice that the letters are dripping. Mm -hmm. Then in the next panel, we see that as his story progresses, he retired and became a teacher working at a school for handicapped children. And in that panel, it really looks like he is looking up what a baseball is <laughs> in a book. And holding it out to the kids like, all right, I'll look up what this thing is. Huh, says here, baseball. And they're all just gathered around it like, ooh. It is such a strangely drawn panel. And it really does look like he's looking it up. He's even like tapping a picture in his encyclopedia with one finger while he holds the ball aloft. <laughs> yep, says here, baseball. Co-figure. Yeah. And then he wanders around in the desert before getting duped by some demons into believing that he is the Messiah. And then he goes around saving lives and uh, curing illnesses, which, you know, good for him, but wouldn't kill him to change into a different pair of pants. Yeah. I get that it's probably a branding thing. He really wants to highlight that he was out in the desert for 20 days. But, uh, you know, he's not the Hulk. He can't pull off the jorts the way that the Hulk can. Yeah, no, it's, it's not a great look for him. I love that during that backstory, there's worked into the exposition boxes that Devil Slayer is, is just snickering <laughs> the whole time. I like that too, although he doesn't have a lot of room to be laughing at someone else's flashbacks because his recollection of the events of previous Defenders issues that he took part in is very suspect. On page five, you see he is having that flashback. The art seems to imply he's saying something along the lines of, yeah, see, I was fighting this agent of fortune guy. Uh, I think he probably had a weird mustache, <laughs> which he totally didn't. He, the agent of fortune in this doesn't have a bird beak. He instead has a Captain Crunch mustache and is holding what looks like a very stylized curved saber in the middle by the blade, while Val is flirting with an alligator monster. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that guy, if Captain Crunch Mustache was... Did I just somehow forget that? Or No, I think that's supposed to be the Birdbeak guy. Whoa. The, the Birdbeak Shadow Cloak Assassin guy. Because uh -huh. uh, other than that, his costuming has the general broad strokes of that, but... He just has a weird cartoon mustache instead of a bird beak. Oh. And then, yeah, you see in the background, Val is flirting with possibly giving directions to a big alligator monster demon. Mm -hmm. But it looks very conversational. And also, it's like Devil Slayer is saying, and remember, Valkyrie, your sword's much smaller than mine. Yeah, her sword is drawn really oddly there. Swords in general in this issue are drawn really oddly. That panel is one example of it. You also see it later on on pages 17 and 18 when there is the big demon angel fight. Mm -hmm. Their lengths are really inconsistent. Sometimes they look like tiny little daggers. 
that was one of the art inconsistencies that I was wondering if those got redrawn from something else, like the walkie-talkies in the reshoots of E.T., you know? Yeah, I think it's just a weird art choice. That's probably true. But the ones that it is most pronounced on are that panel, and then later on towards the end of the book, specifically the one where David throws himself onto Devil Slayer's sword. Devil Slayer either has a very, very small sword, or he is holding it at an angle that would make David impaling himself on it impossible. So it's just a very confusing panel. It is to the degree that, I gotta say, my suspension of disbelief it just wasn't effective. You know, like, if you're going to throw yourself onto a sword to such a degree it impales you to death, mm-hmm. it, it cannot be held idly in somebody's hand on sand. Yeah, it looks like he should just be doing a belly flop onto the flat of a sword mm-hmm. for reasons that are incredibly unclear. Yeah, it's goofy. It undercuts the monumental nature of his sacrifice pretty significantly. It does. And, I don't know, following that thread, the whole, like, oh, you know, what a what a pity, what a waste. And, like, oh, no, it wasn't a waste because he made this great sacrifice. And Devil Slayer says to his ex-wife, you know, Road to Hell is paved with good intentions. And she follows that up with, um, she says, maybe if we had more dreamers, Eric, the road wouldn't lead to hell at all. Did that lose you? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it, it sounds profound, but it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> it's like, at first I was like, oh, she just is saying that if a lot of people have good intentions, then it doesn't lead to hell. And I was like, no, that's not what she said, though. Yeah, it's it's tough to check your metaphor math on that. It doesn't seem to follow for me that if more people did the bad thing, then it would be good. Mm-hmm. And it zooms in on the Messiah's dead, open-eyed face. Yeah. When she says that, too. So it's just kind of, it just leaves it hanging. Yeah, we're just left to assume that Eric's response must be something along the lines of, I guess? Mm. Okay, I'm not going to argue with you about this because your friend did just sacrifice his life in an attempt to undo some of the harm that he did. But, okay, just, you know, I'm going to let you have this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you can see that. I don't know if consternation is the right word in um, Devil Slayer's face <laughs> during that exchange. It's like, oh, geez. What do you think of the addition of Devil Slayer to the Defenders? Um, kind of meh. Yeah, I'm in the meh boat with you. Yeah. I like the character. I think he's an interesting character, or at least could be. But visually in terms of character and in terms of power set, I don't really see what he brings to the team that isn't already there. And mostly, I think he's going to just cause a lot of confusion for me, and he already has a little bit. Yeah, and he shows up, Kyle's like, I think it's Kyle's, or maybe it was Son of Satan, like, who's this asshole? And Strange is like, oh, I asked everybody (laughs) (laughs) to come. He's the one that showed up. Pretty much. But, like, 
if you just look at the character, it's like, what does he have that the Defenders didn't already have? Uh, ties to the occult. No, they got that definitely handled with Isaac, son of Satan, and Steve. Having the devil be part of his name. <laughs> well, son of Satan's got that wrapped up. Having a big old sword. Oh, no, Val's got that. Well, he's got a shadow cloak. Oops, so does Patsy. Nice cowl. Oh, no, we got cowls. Yep, Guile's got the cowl beat. Funky cape. Nope, Patsy's got one of those. Steve's got a cape. Kyle's got a cape. Son of Satan's got a cape. So in, in a sense, he fits in. But honestly, in the shots that are out of costume, having another kind of generic-looking brown-haired white guy was really confusing for me when him and Kyle were hanging out together. And now that Kyle has been faith-cured by demons, there's not even that to disambiguate the two. The other thing is, his costume, it's not great. It's fine. I like the cape part, but it's such a generic-looking costume. It's a name that doesn't quite work. I think the best thing about this character, I like, I like big aspects of his backstory. I think it's interesting to have him be just, like, really against cults. Mm -hmm. I think it makes more sense as an Ed Hannigan character where he was so intensely individualistic. I think that is kind of the point of the character is he's just like, nope, don't do what people tell you, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I learned that lesson. I worked with the government. That was a huge mistake. I accidentally joined a cult. That was a huge mistake. I think it's interesting that the character's backstory includes... I think he's a recovering alcoholic, if I remember correctly, and that he's got that divorce in his past. There's some interesting aspects about his backstory. I think it could be an interesting character. I'm not crazy about him here. He's just not doing much for me. Yeah, I thought that the most interesting thing about him in this issue was his wife or his ex-wife is, is a black woman and he's a white guy. And it was one of the first times in, in this book, anyway, I recall seeing a mixed couple like that yeah that was still pretty rare at the time that this book came out and certainly more so when his character was first introduced a few years before this i think the first interracial kiss that they showed in a marvel comic was in the early 70s and that was in a an issue of kill raven and that was set way in the future as if to say yeah you know someday this will be okay with us and I think in the later 70s, Iron Fist and Misty Knight started dating. But at this point, depictions of interracial couples in Marvel Comics were still pretty rare. So it is nice to see that kind of representation. His character, we went over this during his first storyline, but he was originally a character created by David Kraft for Atlas Comics called Demon Hunter, which is a name that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Like... I mean, there's just one devil, and you can only kill somebody once. So it just sets him up to be a failure, you know? You had one job, Eric. <laughs> like, literally, his name has, is that he has one job, to kill the devil. Looks like the devil's still alive. Bad job, Eric. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's a more, like, generic take on the word devil. Like, uh, you know, like uh, that weed eater that you let me borrow the other day. It's not just going to eat one weed. Right. It's going to eat any type of weed. So uh, theoretically, he would be killing dirt devils, um, mm -hmm. the Jersey devil, the hockey team, the Jersey devils. Devil's um, uh, food cakes. Sure. Just smashing those. 
Yeah, so I guess he is a pretty versatile character. <laughs> After all. We get a brief cameo by Man-Thing in this. Any thoughts on that? It was very uh, intriguing. You know, I'd, I'd want to see where it goes. I love Swamp Thing, and this is as close as we're going to get. That's true. I think this might be a callback to in earlier Man-Thing issues, and actually the ones that introduced Howard the Duck as a character, we find out that his particular swamp in Florida is the locus of a thing called the Nexus of All Realities. And I think that little Terran reality that looks like maybe he's flying a kite is supposed to show that uh, that's going to make a comeback. So we'll we'll see what happens with that. Could be interesting. Mm. This particular depiction of Man-Thing, when you see Man-Thing, he's of various sizes and varying degrees of dick-nosedness. And uh, this is a very dick-nosed Man-Thing who is smaller than we are used to seeing, I would say. Yeah, it is a really goofy choice to, to make this character's face the way that they did. Yeah, and they made that choice with another character in this book. When the illusions are dropped and David sees what his demons really look like. Oh my gosh. Uh, that is the example that I thought of when you said it seems like the artwork may have been a little rushed. That was one of the main things I was thinking of, too, because these are some goofy-ass, cartoon-ass looking demons. There is some very specific character design work that is done on them that doesn't make a ton of sense, but there is one of the demons specifically who has that same man-thing dick-nose thing going on, and he's got chicken legs, and he's dark green, and he looks like he's taking a shit, because he's just squatting down, holding a goofy-looking sword that's the same color as he is, and making a face that isn't unlike he's taking a shit. I think he's my favorite demon in that picture, although... I do have kind of a soft spot for angry bee demon man with the furry underpants. I don't know. I think uh, purple booty demon. Yeah, that demon does have a very pronounced butt, and it looks like he's got a tongue coming out of his nose. Yeah, it does, actually. I thought that was supposed to be coming out of his mouth, but it's, it's debatable. At first, I thought it was half a mustache, and there is some precedent for unsymmetry in these creatures because you do see that giant snake thing that's behind the pooping dick nose demon looks like it just has one foot instead of a tail mm -hmm. yeah this whole panel is really it's, it's just not the caliber of art <laughs> that i'm used to it well, looks it, like it was drawn by i don't know like me <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it was done with a lot of enthusiasm it stands out even more because the panel right before it is a really beautifully drawn panel of Steve doing some magic shit. And then you see what it is revealing is these goofy-ass, fucking completely unintimidating demons. Yep, I noticed the same thing about the preceding panel. Steve is making a gesture that I don't think I've seen him make before. He's doing the typical, like, I love you from American Sign Language sign. Mm-hmm with his left hand, but he's doing the exact opposite of it with his right hand. I was actually 
trying to see if I could make my hand do that. It's a really awkward gesture. Yeah, I can, but it's a little it's a little bit difficult. And on the panel before that, he's doing a different hand combination where he's doing the yes, the ASL I love you with one hand, and in the other one he's just got a flat palm supermanning straight up. Mm-hmm. There are some attempts to show different spells that he's doing. I like the one where he does, yeah, the I love you or the Spider-Man thwip thing. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the opposite of that with his other hand. It reminds me of, did you ever see the pro wrestling team, the Legion of Doom? Mm, I don't know. They had one guy who had a mohawk and then another guy who had two mohawks next to each other that looked like they were maybe designed to fit together with the other guy's mohawk. And I'm wondering if Steve's trying to plan a thing like that, where he's like, oh, then I could just mush my hands together like that and do a super spell. Ah. Yeah, could be like a couple of mohawks. Yeah. That's what I think most people would see that as. Like, uh, you know, two muscly dudes with interlocking mohawks. Uh-huh. Yeah. I should have you write in the metaphors for this. That would be a pie made out of steel for all of us, Corey. Okay, okay. So, Kyle's all better, I guess. Uh, physically, but I don't know, man. What do you think that that Messiah is saying to him on page 10? Let me take a look. He's whispering something in Kyle's ear as he's got Kyle cradled in his arms, and Kyle looks very disturbed. Oh, man. I think maybe he's telling Kyle, look, those socks really aren't working for you. No, no, Kyle, because Kyle is kind of like slouching and has like a, oh, like disappointed <laughs> face. But I think there's more to it. Yeah, there might be more to that than sock criticism, because, yeah, he looks more just like, oh, he looks like maybe he pooped himself. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's a look of embarrassment. Yeah. I don't know. It did seem like a weird choice to have the demons cure him of the affliction that they had given him as part of some kind of a bluff, I guess. Yeah, the idea is that by doing these miracles, Messiah is going to get hundreds of thousands of people to follow him. And then Mm -hmm. they'll do a switcheroo later and be like, surprise, we're demons. Right. So I guess just part of that bluff was Kyle's demon-inflicted malady getting cured by demons. Yeah, which makes it almost a clever thing to do on his part. I say almost because it is Kyle. But uh, I I will say I did have more sympathy for him in this, and I have in the past few issues. I think partly just because of what a dick Son of Satan was to him throughout this issue. Yeah, Son of Satan was in rare form. But we also saw Steve just forgetting how time zones work and that Kyle had this daylight melody. Yeah, I mean, it does build into the story, though, that Steve is distracted right now because of something he saw in Patsy's brain. Mm -hmm. What do you think that was? I don't know. I mean, I think we're supposed to see it as being something kind of demonic, but it may have also just been that I don't know, it's part of the reason I never want to tap into anybody's mind psychically is just knowing what they really think about me. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind was, yeah, he just got a hard dose of honesty. Oh, no! 
Does my mustache really look like that? Man, the demons are really goofy. Like, we've talked a lot about the finger puppets of the six-fingered hand. Uh-huh. But also, I had forgotten, like, the depiction of Avarish. It's just really kind of silly. Many of the demons are. Okay, which one is Avarish? I assumed he was the one leaving Patsy. Okay. He's not ungoofy, but I would say he's among the less goofy of the demons living on the hand. Because what I'm assuming is one of the ones we haven't met seems to have a pretty bad toupee going on for himself. Mm-hmm. And then you've got that weird one that looks like Ferengi Reggie Miller with a soft grip bicycle grip on his head. Oh, man. Yep. Uh, that would be fa- uh, Fashima, I believe. Mm-hmm. The demons of the six-fingered hand in that particular panel, it is a badly drawn hand that they are on. The proportions just seem weird, and it's tough to tell that they're on a hand. It looks more like they are six people sharing a single turtleneck that has, like, different necks coming out of it. <laughs> yeah. L- like they're trying to pose for a Beatles album cover, maybe. <laughs> Like, maybe for a Christmas card. I think my sister sends those out. Uh, Her and her family for a while were doing the uh, versions of Beatles albums covers uh, with her and her husband and her kids. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is what the six-fingered hand are up to that, and they popped out to make a flashback in Patsy's mind, but they didn't have time to change. You think that's what's disturbing, (laughs) Steve? I think it might be. I find it kind of disturbing. It is disturbing. They are also making what to me is not a terribly convincing argument about their might and their inevitable triumph, because they're mostly talking about the times that Steve beat them up when they're threatening him. They're like, what good is it to triumph, mage, when evil can never die? You drove out Avarish, and Prishant came to plague you. You bested Prishant, and Fashima swept over your world. And then they beat Fashima. They go on to say, evil will keep coming, mage. But there's only six of them. It's not like they're the infinite fingered hand. They're the six fingered hand. And they're bringing up the fact that he's beaten half of them already. Yeah, it is very much of a three down, three to go argument, which. Yeah, and by the end of the issue, it's four down, two to go, it would seem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just not really swayed by their argument. Being demons, I would have thought they'd be better lawyers than that. So I think probably the inspiration for this story was in some part due to increased reporting about something called Jerusalem Syndrome. Is that something you're familiar with? No. It's a phenomena where when people visit Jerusalem, they will sometimes experience religious-themed psychoses which often will revolve around them thinking they are the Messiah. It's something that happened with a fair amount of regularity. It was first discussed clinically in the 30s, but in the 80s, there was a big uptick of it. Between 1980 and 1990, there were, I think, over a thousand cases of tourists specifically being diagnosed with it, and almost half of them ended up being hospitalized because of it. So I think in the early 80s, there was starting to be more reporting of that. And it wouldn't surprise me if that was in some way the inspiration for David's character. Wow, far out. I have never heard of that. 
that makes me not want to visit that city just on the chance that that would happen. I think fair enough. I think probably the odds are still in your favor, but... Yeah, pretty comfortable with my atheism, but I don't know. It'd be weird to have that shaken up so much. I, if it was shaken to the extent that you thought you were the Messiah, that's a pretty big swerve on your atheism. Right? So, oh, I always thought there was no God, but I mean, I guess that's because it's me. Or my dad. Or me and my dad. Or me and my dad and that ghost. I'm never really clear on the whole split of how that works. Man, the chore wheel is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> well, are you ready to get into the minutiae? Sure, let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Why don't we get clothes out of the way? Okay, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? I think the whole disguise crew, the defenders, when they're in their civilian disguises on page 7, I called them the Sears party, because it looked like uh, they were all wearing outfits out of like what I imagined a Sears catalog of that era would look like. Yeah, I could totally see that. I totally found that to be probably the most noteworthy fashion in there as well. I'm assuming these disguises are courtesy of Steve, right? Mm -hmm. He made some big swings with some of these guys. Like, he gave himself kind of a safari look, and then Kyle, he decided, should be wearing shorts and really tall, really thick socks. With loafers. Loafers and a short sleeve dress shirt. It's just missing suspenders to have it look like later hosens. Oh, totally. Valkyrie is wearing a blue tank top and short shorts that are the same color as her legs, which is very distracting. Oh, I just thought those were like really tight pants. I'm pretty sure those you can see the little lines up there. I think those are supposed to be where the shorts end. It's a weird choice, and I think that is probably a coloration miscue. Hmm. The two that come out best in this, I think, are probably. Eric Simon Payne, the devil killer, and Son of Satan. Son of Satan actually looks pretty good. He's got a like a black polo shirt and purple pants, and for some reason he carries off that look pretty good. Oh yeah, no, definitely it's, uh, rocking the uh, office casual attire. Yeah, but there's something about the bright purple slacks that makes it look like, I don't know, office casual at the Church of Satan's phone bank or something. ESP is wearing blue jeans and an orange shirt. The only really noteworthy thing about it is that the orange shirt has a wildly fluctuating neckline. <laughs> At times, it is a regular V-cut. At times, it is the deepest of Vs that goes down well beyond his navel. And then in the very next panel, it'll be up around his neck. And that seems to be going up and down as he is flirting with his ex-wife and catching up with her. It's just a weird choice, and I wonder if maybe he has some psychic control over it. We have seen before that one of his powers, the reason perhaps why they gave him the initials ESP, is because he has psychic control over cloth. So maybe that is his doing and not Steve's. Yeah, we'll never know. But I think the most interesting decision he made 
was with Isaac, the gargoyle. He gave him a party shirt covered in bananas. Is that what that is? I was trying to discern the pattern. It could be crescent moons. I I thought bananas, though. He also got to choose Isaac's body, too. And he made him kind of a stockier guy. He looks kind of like Abel from the House of Mystery comic books. But he's just kind of a schlubby dude who sometimes has white hair, sometimes has black hair. It's weird that he didn't just make him look like whatever Isaac looks like. This guy, whatever else he is, he is not in his mid-80s. He's probably about 50 or so, I would guess. Yeah, the way he's drawn here reminded me of a character from, what's that comic, American Splendor? Oh, yeah. I can see Harvey Picard interacting with that guy. Uh-huh. He, yeah, he looks like a regular Joe from Cleveland, kind of. Other fashion, we talked about Devil Slayer's costume. Like I said, it's serviceable. It's fine. It has more straps on it than I think it used to. I think they're trying to gussy it up a little bit. I think when he was back in the Atlas comics and was Demon Hunter, it probably made more sense for him to have a blander outfit like that because it wasn't, it was trying to skirt the line between a superhero and a sword and sorcery type of thing. And so in the superhero context, it's just a little bit bland. It doesn't have much going for it. He does have interesting boots, I will say. They have weird shaped cuffs that I think are kind of fun. And vaguely, very vaguely reminiscent of like a devil head. Hmm. So, I don't know if that's nice, I guess. I like his civilian duds much better than his costume on page, I think page five, where he's sitting on the bench with his wife. Oh, and the flashbacks. Yeah, no, it's clear that he used to be a better dresser. Yeah. Back when he was in a cult. He's got like a really 70s, maybe rayon of polyester, some very shiny type of black shirt with huge lapels and a bright orange blazer and some pressed green pants. Yeah, I really do like that outfit. I like the wide lapeled black shirt that he's got on specifically as part of that outfit. I think in terms of other noteworthy things, we already mentioned Kyle Socks and the six-fingered hands, uh, I guess, turtleneck? Mm-hmm. So I think it's just one shirt, but with many turtlenecks. So should it be plural or not? Mm. Are those turtlenecks, or is it a turtleneck? I'm going to throw this out there. It's a turtle's neck. Does that work? Uh, no, no, that's confusing. Oh, well, then... I'm going to ask you to call it. You've got many necks on the shirt, but it is a single shirt. Do you go plural or not? I'm going to say it's a turtle-necked shirt. So not a turtle-neck shirt, but a turtle-necked shirt. I don't see how that implies that there is more than one neck to it. Because it's uh, more ambiguous, because if you just say neck, that's one. But if you say necked, it could be any number of necks. All right, your story checks out. That way you don't have to mess around with where does the apostrophe go? Oh boy, that can be a problem. And actually, I am going to need your call on apostrophe placement for our next category as well. Let's get into our Battle of the Band Names. In last week's Battle of the Band Names... The writhing obscenities again triumphed, this time over internal hibachi. Really not a surprise for me. Internal hibachi, it sounded like I would like their music, but 
the writhing obscenities is a much stronger name, I think, objectively. Mm-hmm. This week, one of the things, as I mentioned, that I'm going to need a judgment call from you on is punctuation. Can I remove an apostrophe? Oh, I'm going to need to know more. Okay. The phrase self-styled saviors is brought up in the book, but it is with an apostrophe because it is referring to your self-styled saviors something. But I think the band name should be the self-styled saviors. So it's not changing any letters, but it is changing punctuation. No, I'm sorry. I think you have to keep the band name with the apostrophe in there, and then it's going to get all these reviews with people like being like, what does it mean? Oh, it's a real Ruth's Chris Steakhouse situation. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I think that maybe uh, knocks it down a bit in the rankings. What band names were you able to come up with? So speaking of punctuation, this one has a, an ellipsis in it, so it's also going to be an annoying band name, but that one is a little extreme. <laughs> is there a question mark at the end? I think it's implied. Mm. Uh, what kind of music do you think they make? Oh, it's just extreme covers. Oh, gosh. <laughs> just different covers of Hole in My Heart? Yeah, or um, what's the More Than Words? That was their like really big hit, right? Yeah, I think probably. Gosh, did they just have ballads? I don't know. I have to look up old Nuno Bentoncourt after this and <laughs> see if he wrote any more rocking songs. Yeah, give him a jingle. Because, I mean, you've heard my side of it and we've heard your side of it, but there's three sides to every story. Oh, yeah? That was the name of one of their albums, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. So one option I had was The Shambling Muck. Ooh, nice. I kind of like that. I think they might be like an old psychedelic proto-jam band. Kind of like the the Moray Eels, maybe. Hmm. Or the Holy Modal Rounders. Another option I had, The Empathic Reflections. Oh, shit. Oh, you had that one, too? Yeah. Well, The Empathic Reflections it is. That's a bummer because I thought, who, if not these guys, is going to give the writhing obscenities a run for their money, but the stinking obscenities? <laughs> <laughs> They're just a worse version of the writhing obscenities. It's like a total obvious ripoff. I like it. A real Stone Temple pilots to their Pearl Jam. <laughs> but according to the arbitrary rules that we have established for ourselves, it is the empathic reflections. So I'm I'm thinking they sound like Enya. Oh. What were you thinking? Gosh, I was thinking like some strawberry alarm clock era psychedelic garage rock. But we have done that a fair amount, so I think you might be right on the Enya tip. Mm. So let's do a hybrid maybe between the two. Garage Enya? <laughs> yes, garage Enya. <laughs> Lo-fi massage music? Yeah. The kind of thing they might play in a gritty cafe on the coast. What was your favorite sound effect this issue? Out, womp. Oh, I read that in a different order. I thought it was womp out. (laughs) Ah, I think they're kind of simultaneous, but it's hard to say it that way. It is. No, I really enjoyed that. It is 
debatable whether the out is supposed to be a sound effect, but it is written in the style of one. And yeah, that is when Steve is urging Patsy to force out all of her demonness in a blast. And she does, and I think on purpose, blast Steve in the face with a bolt of the demonness, which makes the noise wump as he is saying out. Mm-hmm. So I liked wump out! But I think in terms of the visual presentation of the sound effect, I am going to go with the merging of heaven and earth as illustrated by a lightning bolt while Kyle is being healed. It makes a crack, but it's just really nicely drawn, and the cur and the rack are separated by a really cool-looking lightning bolt. It's on page 12, and I thought it was nice. Yeah, that is a very dramatic panel, and the, the sound effect really plays into the drama of the panel. Mm-hmm. Any other sound effects you wanted to bring up? Um, I had a runner-up, which I think is maybe Kyle shooting uh, some lizard demons. And mm-hmm. uh, one of them makes the noise, Fizzwalk. Fizzwalk's a fun one. I noticed that as well. And frankly, I think those are all of the sound effects that are in this issue. Not a very sound effect forward foray. Yeah. And by the way, that demon that's getting Fizzwalked is, it's just so stupid looking. It is a T-Rex head and a little mm-hmm. tiny tail. Well, at least he gets a tail. His tail doesn't go down into a single foot that he has to try to balance on the way that <laughs> other demon does. Yeah, those guys are... I feel bad for them, actually. I mean, they're flunkies to a bunch of demons who are doing a fucking rent share on a giant hand. What do you expect from them? Yeah, good point. I feel like since they are those demons' hench people, they should have to wear windbreakers with a picture of the six-fingered hand on the back, like the Joker's flunkies used to, you know? I agree. I like it. Like Letterman jackets? Letterman jackets in intent, but I think they should be specifically satin windbreakers. Oh, that is classy. All right. Yeah. You know what? Speaking of goofy looking demons, this next category was inspired by one goofy looking demon. Behold or be gone. As mentioned previously, One of these goofy-ass looking demons looks a lot like a bee man who is wearing furry briefs and is carrying a big sword. It reminded me a lot of the He-Man action figure, Buzz Off, which for years I thought was named Bumblor. So, Corey, behold or be gone, renaming Buzz Off Bumblor. Oh, that's a big decision. Hold on. It, it really is. It's The stakes could not be higher. There we go. <laughs> All right. Buzz off or bumblore? Yeah, now buzz off, it's like his name is telling him to go away, which is especially cruel because he's supposed to be a heroic warrior. Uh-huh. He's one of the good guys? Yeah. Okay. And bumblore is spelled just one word? Uh, yes. B-U-M-B-L-O-R? Yes, it would be fitting with the naming convention of the bad guy Grizzlor or Stinkor, you know, Bumblor, because he's a bumblebee. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm going to behold that. I think it's got a nice ring to it. Okay. I also, I mean, it's my suggestion. 
So, I mean, clearly I think that he should be named Bumblor. I guess as a follow-up question, there's that demon bee man there. Would you want to eat any of his honey? I would not. I think I might. You don't know what how that's going to affect you. That's true, but I mean, like, we've seen, as evidenced in this issue and from Son of Satan, that even Hellspawn powers can be turned to good. Ah, uh, that road to hell is paved with good intentions if there aren't enough dreamers. Yeah, but maybe I'll be the dreamer that's the turning point that makes there enough dreamers that the road starts changing direction and leading to, I don't know, at least someplace neutral. Maybe the road to mm, Poughkeepsie can be paved with with fine intentions. Yeah, I don't know about any of that, but I'm I'm a behold to renaming the He-Man character Buzz Off to Bumblor. Yeah, also Corey, I like spicy honey. It's good. You know, a little bit a little bit of that on a on a pizza. You ever have that? What uh, spicy honey? It's like honey that comes in a jar and it says it's spicy, or you you add chilies to it or something. I don't know. I've just had spicy honey as a pizza topping, and it's really good. Like at a fancy wood-fired pizza place. That's crazy. It's just a little drizzle of it. I have never had that, but I I want to. Yeah, think how spicy demonic bee man honey would be. No, I'm not going anywhere near the products of these guys. They are <laughs> all right. They are second rate at best. You don't know how their honey's gonna be. They're second rate as demons, as bees, they might be okay. Look at the guy hopping on one foot. <laughs> well, I'm not eating that guy's honey, Corey. It's the bee man above him. I'm not eating any fucking dick face honey. Just I'm talking bee man honey. I don't know. It's gonna be spicy. Because he's from hell. And maybe I'll get superpowers. Well, sounds like a behold for you. But uh, definitely be gone for me. I think the downside would be I'm a little bit confused as to the honey-making process. I don't know if that bee man is going to have to fuck a giant flower to make it. I'd rather he didn't. Mm -hmm. Probably he'll just cover his legs in pollen. Oh, gosh, I'm not crazy about that visual either. But I was just going to say, that's your understanding of how honey is made? Yeah, don't bees coat their legs in pollen and bring it back to the hive? No, the first thing you said about fucking a giant flower. (laughs) Yeah, you know, birds and the bees. Oh, do you think the bee fucks a bird? I, d- I no, I don't. I d- no. Okay, that's for the best. I mean, better than the bird fucking the bee. That just seems uncomfortable for everybody. Uh, I'm uncomfortable. Okay, then moving on. <laughs> Maybe that's what David said to Kyle. He's like, "Hey, man, you ever really wonder where honey comes from? I got this theory." <laughs> You know that birds and the bees thing? Who do you think's on top? <laughs> Suddenly Kyle wants out of there so badly that he can walk again. Worst messiah ever. Yeah, bad job. Speaking of people who did a bad job, every issue of a Defenders comic book has a worst offender, as well as a best defender. In this issue, who did you have as your respective worst and best? Well, start with the best, and uh, this one was a little hard for me because because of the way that he approached things. I don't want to give it to him, mm-hmm. but I think in terms of saving the day and getting people where they needed to go, I went with Steve. Yeah, I guess he did almost kill Kyle. 
Yeah, but that's that kind of charming naivete he has about time zones or just like he's he's like got that kind of absent-minded professor thing going on in this issue which i thought was kind of cute and he also does a funny thing where son of satan's being a total jerk this whole issue right and he's in the middle of a diatribe telling somebody he doesn't care about their vacuous homilies and steve (laughs) just loudly sighs to interrupt him (laughs) that is pretty fun I really like the way J.M. DeMattis writes Steve. It seems like he is picking up on the same things about him that we kind of have that I think were done unintentionally in the past, but he's writing him that way on purpose as kind of a distracted, ultra-powerful goofus Mm -hmm. who's really good at the sorcery stuff, but really bad at people's skills or paying attention to what's happening. And I've, I've really been enjoying that. As my best defender, I actually had Kyle. (laughs) I liked that he was polite when he um, just, you know, didn't want to be a bother. He shows up in Detroit and tries to have a good attitude about being summoned there for no reason. And is like, no, 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 I'm happy to. Since when is it a burden to go where your friends are? Besides, I like cars, so I'll come to Detroit. Clearly, he's trying to put a good face on that. I appreciate that effort. Mostly, though. I like the fact that there's this old, like, Borscht Belt comedy thing. I guess some would call it a joke. (laughs) Where the premise is, oh, you gotta help my brother, he thinks he's a chicken. And the psychiatrist is like, okay, well, can you get him in here tomorrow? And the guy's like, "Eh, can we make it next week? We really need the eggs. Kyle Mm. takes that approach towards this guy who he's like, well, I don't think this guy's the messiah. But I'll let him heal me. Mm -hmm. We can convince him he's not the Messiah after we get the miracles. And it works out for him. You know, he got the eggs. He is now fully healed up because he didn't want to look a gift Messiah in the mouth and see that it was filled with demon fangs, I guess. I'm kind of losing the metaphor there. But either way, good job, Kyle. Yeah, that's that's fair. He had a good attitude. Conversely, who did you have as the worst offender? Well, I did enjoy him calling Kyle an idiot and a buffoon, but (laughs) just for having a really bad attitude throughout this entire thing. And yeah, I know it's his dark soul rising or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I'm starting to get a little tired of Son of Satan's shit. I'm not getting tired of his shit, but I also had him as the worst offender. I, I mean, I enjoyed the ways that he was the worst in this, I think partly because so much of it was aimed at Kyle. But he did a bad job, both in terms of the attitude and sass, and also the hypocrisy of, you can't be possibly doing good because you got your powers from a demon. Uh, hold up there, son of Satan, using your hellfire powers to heal people. Like, first of all, you should have recognized that that's what was happening immediately. Second of all, who are you to cast asparagus on him? Yeah, and I mean, you can't really blame Messiah for freaking out when he's like, let's all hold hands and meditate, and then he suddenly sees Son of Satan and Gargoyle standing there. That was the other thing, where, yeah, when he walks into that situation and it's like, oh, you want to reveal the truth? Fine. Me and the gargoyle will hold your hand and you'll reveal our true nature. And then when that happens, he just sits back and is just like, 
So you see, we're fine. Yeah, not cool. It's like, no, you've got a pentagram on your fucking chest, and this guy is in the body of a literal demon. Yeah, yeah, the confusion is understandable on uh, Kessler's side. Yeah, they're gonna think you're the bad guys, at least until a dick-nosed demon starts taking a shit in front of them. Then they'll be like, okay, no, that guy is the bad guy. Yeah, uh, things just got weird. So yeah, I am in full agreement. Son of Satan is the worst in this issue. What was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel? Yeah, this one was a little bit of a longer one. And it's at the end after Messiah falls on somebody else's sword. And his exposition is uh, the demon, who, by the way, I keep reading the name wrong. It is Hypoarchy, but it's Hippocry. Hippocry, probably, but now I'm going to call him Hypoarchy, too. Yeah. Like, he is the grand vizier of a temple that worships Porky Pig. <laughs> yep. So, Hypoarchy is... The thing that flees shrieking from his gourd and bloody body sheds no tears, nor do the stinking obscenities that soon follow their demonic master into unknown regions. No, tears are only for those poor souls, dot dot dot, left behind. Dun dun dun! Dramatic, no? Yeah, very. I enjoyed that a great deal. I thought that was really good and... Man, I wish I had thought to have stinking obscenities go up against the writhing obscenities. Oh. I don't know that they could have taken them, but uh, would have been a fun fight. Mm-hmm. For my pie not made out of steel, I had words that we have referenced before, and it is when Son of Satan is about to smack around David, I guess, and Kyle intervenes. Son of Satan says to Kyle Richmond, As I've long suspected, Richmond, you are an idiot, a buffoon. (laughs) I just like that it was, I always suspected this. (laughs) Yep. It's not nice, but it did crack me up. It was funny. And Kyle may not have had it coming this issue, but he has had it coming in general for a while now. Oh, yeah, you bet. What was your favorite panel? I do really like when Devil Slayer first shows up i think it's page six and uh his cape is doing some really interesting flowing around things that's pretty striking i think my favorite though is what i referred to earlier as the seer's party and it's on page seven and it's the whole crew in their civilian disguises yeah i think that is a good one too i liked the opening page a lot I like it whenever superheroes are hanging out in a totally mundane setting, and they're hanging out in the most generic-looking rental house in Detroit, and where they are such a specifically eldritch and bizarre-looking team of individuals, having them sit in a living room, or in Steve's case, hover cross-legged in a living room, it just always is nice to see for me. One of my favorite panels in any comic, and it's actually come up a few times, is in over in DC. There are a few different times when a hero will come home and Darkseid will be sitting in an easy chair in their living room. <laughs> it always delights me, and it does in this instance as well. So I liked that panel a lot, but I don't think I liked it better than the panel that I call the Steve Patsy hybrid 
daydreaming about a turtleneck demon. <laughs> that is a weird page, man. It is. The images, it's supposed to show Steve inside of Patsy's mind. The way that that is visually represented is a picture of their faces split halfway down the middle with Steve on one side, Patsy on the other, and an open third eye in their forehead. And then flashbacks of recent issues surrounding them. It's just really weird. I can't even necessarily say it's all that well done, but I liked it. It's definitely something. It is visually arresting, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Corey, it's been a while since he's graced the pages of this book, but I think we both remember that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? So the Hulk's rules in this issue are that if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, having a lot more people with good but vague, unfocused, dreamy intentions is better because then that road does not lead to... Wait. Bah! Hulk hate stupid metaphor! <laughs> Ask the Hulk's rules. I think that's a good rule. And one we would all benefit from. <laughs> I had the Hulk's rule being, if someone is trying to tell you something... Let them finish what they are saying without interrupting. Because in this issue, Son of Satan does that thing that I hate when people do in TV shows and movies, and it happens so often where someone is trying to say something and they keep getting cut off by somebody saying, no, 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 I know what you're going to say. You're going to say something stupid that I disagree with. And the person is trying to warn them of an immediate danger. Kyle is trying to tell Son of Satan that I am about to collapse because you forgot about time zones. And Son of Satan is like, Shut up, Kyle, you're going to say something stupid, I can tell. So just be quiet. And then a panel and a half later, Kyle collapses. That's another reason why SOS is the worst. Indeed it is. Well, it is a fair guess that Kyle is probably going to say something stupid. You need to let that thing play out. Yep. And that's the Hulk's rules. Well, Corey, I got just one more question I gotta ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1981, and the month of our Lord, July, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So Wong had saved up for a vacation. I know it seems like he goes on a lot of vacations in these segments, but usually that's going somewhere with Steve, so it's kind of like a work function. This is just Mm -hmm. all on his own. And I think we've expressed or uh, talked about Wong's interest in sport before. Oh, yes. In particular, the game of rugby, which, you know, is really exciting. There's a lot going on. And he's really excited because he got some tickets to see his all-time favorite rugby team play, and that's the All Blacks of New Zealand in New Zealand. So towards the end of the month of July, got on the plane, went there, realized that the team that they were playing was actually South Africa's Springboks, who essentially were representing apartheid in a way at the time, Mm -hmm. as that was going on. And there's a lot of awareness building and, and boycotts of apartheid taking place around the world. And Wong had to, you know, make that choice. Do I want to see this match play out with my favorite rugby team? Or do I want to prevent a apartheid regime from having more airtime 
And there were a lot of other people with the same idea there. There were protesters that wanted to shut the game down to boycott it in protest of the apartheid government in South Africa. But they were basically being held back by security. And Wong was able to use his magic to disguise those protesters as rugby players, allowing them onto the field, which then allowed them to interrupt the pitch during the game, resulting in the cancellation of the game and the following um, boycott of the Springboks playing in New Zealand. That was on July 25th, 1981. Wow. Good job, Wong. That may have been one thing that Wong was up to. The other thing that Wong was up to was turning an unfortunate situation into one that benefited the entire world. See, Wong made a bit of a social faux pas with Steve earlier in the month. Around the beginning of the month, he made the mistake of telling Steve, you know, you look a little bit like Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like you're you both like kind of spooky and uh, you got weird little mustaches. And Steve was like, Edgar Allan Poe, if this man is as sartorially splendid as myself, then surely his literary dalliances are worth perusing. So Steve went out and got himself a collection of Edgar Allan Poe's works and sat down and read Murder at the Rue Morgue. And it freaked him the fuck out. He was sure that an orangutan was going to come and kill him. Because <laughs> that was what happened. Sorry, spoiler alert. That was part of what happened in Murder in the Rue Morgue. He saw that Poe had another story called The Cask of Amontillado, and he didn't even bother reading that. He just saw the name and it's like, if that cask is anything near as scary as that scary murder monkey, then I'm not having anything to do with that. Hmm, I wonder if the cask could perhaps be luring the monkey to my house. Or worse yet, what if that murderous ape is hiding inside of a cask? I will destroy them. And so he got out a sledgehammer and just started smashing all of his barrels of wine that he had <laughs> in the building. And this happened to coincide. Wong had a friend over, as we've talked about before. I think mostly you've brought this up, but Wong has a lot of connections in the computer programming world. And he happened to be having a friend of his stay over who was visiting from Japan, his friend Shigeru Miyamoto. Miyamoto came out and was like, Wong, what is happening? I, I can't make sense of this. Why is that mustachioed man smashing barrels with a hammer? And Wong had to explain, well, it's because he's afraid of a giant monkey. And that is why, on July 9th, Shigeru Miyamoto debuted his creation, the video game Donkey Kong. <laughs> <laughs> Featuring a mustachioed worker smashing barrels with a hammer because he was afraid of a monkey. Nice work. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in July of 1981. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. I had a great time talking about this comic book with you. Same. Glad to hear it. And we will be back next week to talk about the new Teen Titans annual number three which features the debut of a character who I understand is going to play a pivotal role in New Teen Titans comics to come. So we'll see how that goes. In the meantime, if you guys would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at 
Tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. You can also probably find us somewhere on the socials media. I'll be in there sharing my thoughts about things. Acting as a film sommelier. Which Mountain Dews go with which specific Mortal Kombat spinoffs? I think probably Major Melon would best go with Mortal Kombat Annihilation because they are both fucking terrible. (laughs) So if you want to go to the internet, we'll be there somewhere, probably. I don't know how it works, but you probably do. You seem smart. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's one other place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. We'll be there. I'll be trying to find some spicy demon honey to put on my pizza. You have any demon honey in your heart? I don't know, but I'm fixing to find out. Corey, what are you up to in there? I think I'm going to see how you react to the demon honey before I try any of it. Oh, a wise and cowardly choice. Thank you. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There are also a whole bunch of videos that I've made featuring reviews of classic comic books. Uh, And the most recent one I did, I talked about Aquaman number 26, which is by Bob Haney and Nick Carty, and goddamn, that comic book is a delight. It is a super spy story where Aquaman and his wife Mera go undercover as a regular human couple called the Watermans. <laughs> it's real goofy and real fun. And so if you want to see my thoughts on that and a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, you can check us out on Patreon. I certainly appreciate all of the support that we get there. Thank you so much for that. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, Corey, why don't you tell them how to do that? Let's see. You could talk to somebody you trust or somebody you don't trust. Yeah, you don't have to trust somebody to talk to them. Mm -hmm. You could tell them, hey, maybe you should go give this show a listen. You could also leave a review in a place where reviews can be left. Oh, sure. What's an example of a place a review can be left? Are we talking like the side of a barn? I understand, A, that is a place that is easy to hit. And also, uh, there's a fair chance that the bad kids will be there smoking cigarettes. Um, Yep, that's one thing that you could do. It's probably easier to try and leave it where the same place you get your podcasts usually, though. Oh, yeah, that's a good call because kids shouldn't smoke. Well, also, like, if you get caught spray painting somebody's barn, if it's not your barn. Oh, yeah, they're going to make you spray paint all the barns to teach you a lesson. Yeah. I don't have that kind of time. What do I look like? One of Tom Sawyer's idiot friends? Yeah, spray painting this barn sure is fun. Oh, it's not. Man, I hate Tom Sawyer. I know. Piece of shit. All right. Hi, Porky. Oh, I hope one day I'm elected high porky. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) Granted. Oh, shit, I wasted my wish. (laughs) Bye. Bye. And they knew it.
in the year of our Lord, 1980 mon- 80 mon? 80 months? Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. David fucking Kessler. <laughs> there we go. 